Hey guys, what is up? Welcome to Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite players and personalities from Magic the Gathering. I'm your host, James Sue. This show is all about understanding what drives my guests to be at their best and to explore their competitive mindset. If you're a first-time listener, I encourage you to explore past Humans of Magic episodes. I've interviewed some great minds like Jerry Thompson, Martin Yuza, Paulo Vitor Demo de Rosa, and more. And if you're a long-time listener, thanks for listening. Your feedback is awesome and motivates me to keep going. Please keep it coming, as I'm always looking for ways to make the podcast better. I also want you to know that the Humans of Magic book is in the works. The book will contain transcripts of the best interviews I've conducted. I will also be throwing in exclusive content that isn't available on the podcast. To learn more about the book, visit the Humans of Magic website at humansofmagic.com. Now, let's get to today's episode. This is a big one, folks. We have none other than one of the greatest Magic players of all time, Mr. Johnny Magic himself, John Finko. Imagine having an interview with the Michael Jordan of Magic, someone who's done it all and accomplished all there is to accomplish within the highest levels of the game. I was a little nervous going into this one. Could I ask John questions that he hadn't been asked a million times already? Fortunately, John was a super nice guy, really down to earth and very relaxed. And I think the interview flowed reasonably well. You'll hear all about John's origin story, his thoughts on the state of the game today, and John's professional magic team. You'll also hear about one of his passion projects called Gamers Helping Gamers. By the way, John's got a wicked sense of humor. I asked him what intro music he wanted to use, and he came up with, well, you'll hear it in just a second, so don't shoot the messenger. Please enjoy this conversation with John Finko. Today on Humans of Magic, I am here with John Finko, one of the greatest magic players ever and someone who I am very excited to talk to. So John, how are you doing today? Thanks, James. I'm excited to be here. I'm doing pretty well. It's uh, coming up to evening time here in New York. I know it's morning out there in China and I'm having a pretty good weekend so far. That's great. And whereabouts in New York are you? Uh, I'm in Tribeca, which is uh, the southern portion of Manhattan. It stands for the Triangle Below Canal. So it's most of the way downtown, but not all of the way downtown. Do you have a nice view of the area from where you are? Uh, I actually do. I'm on the uh, the 15th floor. Although if I count the stories of the buildings next to me, I'm probably more on like the 13th floor, but every building is, is a little bit generous with their floor numbers. Uh, and I have a pretty good view. I can see uh, across the river to New Jersey and people can, can laugh at that, but it's a quite nice view. And of course, I'm from New Jersey. Yeah, I, I have a, I, I have a, a nice little uh, a nice little panorama um, because the, the, you know, the walls are mostly windows. That's great. And how long have you been in Tribeca for? So I've actually only been here for two months. Uh, but before this, I lived in Soho, which stands for south of Houston, uh, on the southern end, which is just right north of, of Tribeca. So it's about an eight-minute walk from where I am here, so really not too far away. That's really interesting for two reasons. Uh, first of all, I didn't know that's what Soho stood for, and people just always mention it. And second of all, I can remember my only trip to New York a few years back, where I tried to ask a, a, what seemed to be a nice lady, where can I find Houston? And she corrected me on the spot, just just cut me off and said, no, it's Houston. Yeah, it's named after a Revolutionary War hero. I think his name is like... Like Georgia Houston, I think it's like George with an S at the end. I could be totally wrong. And yeah, so that's the uh, the pronunciation. And I guess Houston is actually like Zero Street, if if you, the numbers continued on down. And then Soho goes down to Canal Street, which is effectively like negative Fifth Street. And I'm at will roughly be about negative Eighth Street or so. Wow, into the negatives. Interesting. Yeah, if you try ex- explaining it that way to to non gamers, they look at you like you're crazy. 
Yeah, it's just not a gaming concept, right? You just told me that you grew up in, in New Jersey. That's where you're from. Have you mostly been living in this area or have you been elsewhere in the U.S. as well? So almost my entire life, I've been in uh, in New York City or New Jersey and specifically North Central New Jersey. I was born in upstate New York, but moved to New Jersey basically before I can remember. I was about a year old. And then when I was in high school for the first three years, my father's company transferred him to England. So I lived in a town called Woking, <clears throat> about 25 miles uh, south of London from ages 14 to 17. But besides that, it's been uh, North New Jersey uh, and then New York for about the last 15 years. And what were those three years like? Did you pick up a, a British accent or get really indoctrinated into the, the culture there? I did not pick up a British accent. In fact, I couldn't do one and I still can't do one. You know, there's a lot that I picked up that I liked. You know, I find it very interesting. You know, it was so long ago that it almost seems like a different world. Uh, that is actually where I did start to play Magic, though. Uh, which is probably, which is, I guess, uh, ended up becoming pretty relevant. Although I, I suspect that if I had not moved there, I would have probably ended up playing Magic as well anyway. It's just one of those things. It's just sort of destined, right? Yeah. You know, g given the, the universes I was in and my interests, it seemed very, very likely. So I'm guessing that you had always been into gaming and competitive gaming or some mixture of that? Yeah, I mean, I always liked to game, and I was at a bit of a competitive streak. Uh, I don't know. I don't think I ever really did anything before Magic that would really be considered competitive gaming. Certainly not anything on an organized scale. But, you know, I also started playing Magic when I was 14 years old, so, you know, there, there wasn't that much other room. I guess I could have played chess, and I mean, I played some chess casually with, you know, like my parents or a couple friends. But, yeah, but no real ga competitive gaming endeavors before that. How did you get introduced into Magic? Was it a friend that taught you, or how, how did you get exposed to it? So, I, uh, like I said, I was living in this town called Woking, and specifically within Woking, a portion called Horzel Park, which is famous because in uh, War of the Worlds, that's where the aliens landed. Uh, both, I believe both in the book and definitely in the famous radio broadcast in England. I don't remember when it was, but it was probably about 70 or 80 years ago now. And uh, there was a game store downtown. It was pretty close to a train station. I saw it at one point. And I'd always been somewhat interested in Dungeons & Dragons in that I'd played the games, like not online, actually, on the computer. They had the, the computer role-playing games, and I'd read, you know, obviously a lot of fantasy, a lot of science fiction. I definitely read a lot of the Dungeons & Dragons world books, especially the ones by Weiss and Hickman, the Dragons... It's like the dra the dragons of spring dawning and the dragons of and and I don't know if that was before or after you know I don't know if that was at age twelve or thir thirteen or if that was age sixteen or seventeen, uh, but I was pretty interested. You know, my dad had played a ton of games as well, and so I decided to stop by to check it out. I was interested in the idea of you know playing some role playing games, which I'd never really done live, and there were some people there playing Magic, and uh, they offered to show me how. And they did, and I ended up getting some commons, and I started to play Magic, and uh, and yeah, I was I was hooked pretty quickly, and uh, here I am now, I guess, you know, 25 years later. Do you remember what were some of the earliest cards or decks that you played for Magic at the time? I, I do. So first of all, I want to say I was actually 15 years old. I did a little math in my head, so <laughs> I'm going to correct myself from earlier. A long time ago. Yeah. No worries. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, see, when you get to my age, uh, I think you're probably a little bit younger than I am, but um, I recently turned 40. You look back in time and you're like, yeah, I don't remember exactly when that was. And then you have to do some math and you figure it out. But, um, yeah, I, I always, I think, liked the control decks. You know, the decks that I would build there were uh, similar in style to, I guess, what's considered to be the deck. Although I would say that they were, you know, not as well tuned. Um, you know, this is more of a, you know, pretty casual, you know, local store environment. I maybe went to one or two other tournaments, but that was, uh, but that was about it. How long did it take you to realize that there were these certain strategies like control and aggro and what we know very, very well now, but at the time, did it take you a while to figure it out or did you pick it up fairly quickly in terms of the concepts? I mean, I don't know exactly how much those concepts were, were discussed or thought about but i definitely 
immediately you know immediately i love blue i thought you know blue is my favorite color it was also clearly the best color and so i you know i like to play counterspell decks um decks that were if not creatureless very close to creatureless uh, i don't know if we used the term control decks or not back then uh, but that's definitely what they were john just switching gears slightly you know we talked about how you've been you grew up in in England and in the U.S. You must have traveled quite a bit as a Magic player. I'm wondering if you've ever been to China. I, I have not, except for in the most technical of senses, which is that I had a four-hour layover once in Hong Kong. And I'm pretty sure it was after 1999, but I'm not even 100% sure. Was that on a way to a pro tour or a tournament or something like that? It, it it was on the way to a tournament, probably in, in Australia, but again, I I don't know for sure. I remember I had a a very a very nice foot massage during my layover. Uh, that's that that's about the entirety of of what I remember. So, how many countries have you been to? Are you even able to keep count? Would you say it's most of the Magic playing countries, or or no? I, I think it's roughly in the neighborhood of forty or so countries, maybe a tiny bit more, probably. You know, at least 30 of them I've played Magic in. So I know it's probably hard to answer this, but I'm wondering if you have a specific memory of you playing Magic on the road that you're particularly fond of. You know, an interesting thing about about me, at least, is that I don't really have a ton of memories of specific matches or specific top eights. You know, after a while, I feel like they sort of blend together. And I think that my brain tends to remember, I guess, the uh, the lessons and the things you learn in terms of playing the game. Uh, but a lot of the specifics and the details, I don't. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, I remember, you know, playing Bob uh, Meyer, the 2000 World Championships when I won. Uh, although, to be honest, it's hard to know how much of my memories from that are actually my memories and how much of it are from the fact that I've seen videos of it online, uh, you know, uh, you know, or on, uh, I guess there, there's an old VHS video and it was on ESPN. Yeah. I've probably seen it a dozen times after. Uh, but you know, I remember that. I remember winning the world championships. You know, I remember in 97 in Chicago when I made my first top eight, which, uh, was probably the one I was happiest about because it, it sort of meant the most, because I had, I think, four top 16s before that. Uh, and, you know, obviously I remember some of the more recent uh, tournaments, but but it's not it's not like any specific things really stand out that much. I mean, when you've played as long as I have, you know, everything's happened to you, both good and bad, <laughs> you know, in one match or another. That's a really interesting concept, is this concept of memory because you had mentioned that you know there are things that you may remember firsthand and there are things that come to you afterwards either through watching videos watching replays or maybe even your friends telling you about it like i was there and i remember you did this and this uh, to the point where the memory itself is sort of almost constructed after the fact uh, i don't know if that's a right way to think about it but just the way you said it made me think of that and i'm just wondering if a lot of your magic memories do they feel more important in retrospect? Do they feel more filled in after the fact? Or do you remember, Do you have a pretty good memory of how things went at the time? I, I think this is actually uh, mostly an impossible question for people to answer. By which I mean, I think most people will give an answer and they'll probably be pretty confident in it. But I think that it's actually in practice very difficult for people to uh, to really know the difference in how their memory has has shifted or how much what they remember was what actually maybe happened versus what is sort of a memory of a memory of a memory. Uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you have any siblings, but I have a sister and sometimes we'll talk about things when we were kids and we'll have, you know, wildly different recollections, you know, you know, who a story happened to, you know, where it was. And, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting, you know, when you have a memory that you feel, you know, that, that you feel is real and you feel very confident in, 
uh, and then somebody else has, uh, you know, one that they feel just as strongly uh, about that's different, but it's obviously pointing at the same event. And so you know that at least one of you has to be wrong. And you know that in some of these instances, the one that's wrong has to be you. And so it uh, it definitely makes you uh, aware, I guess, of the, you know, the imperfection of memory. Yeah, definitely. And it's very hard to, I mean, it's impossible to play it back and, and uh, reconstruct. And sometimes your memory is just faulty, right? I, I've had that happen, not just with my sibling. I have one sibling as well. But just, just in general, there's things that sometimes they're minor, but sometimes they shatter your world because you, it's like you've been operating on this assumption for many, many years, and you realize that it was all falsely constructed. <laughs> so. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, look, you play basketball, right? I mean, how many times have you thought you got fouled, and then someone else is like, actually, he didn't hit you at all, and you're like, no, no, he definitely hit me. But then sometimes you'll see it the other way, and you have to realize that sometimes you even feel like you got fouled. 15 seconds ago and you were actually wrong about it and uh and so you know this is something that i think is happening to us uh pretty often uh and it's and it's kind of interesting yeah definitely and also in basketball nobody ever feels like they did the fouling which is hilarious when you watch professional sports you know the the looks of incredulous disbelief that's what i love yeah exactly I'm just wondering if you have any memories at all related to the actual travels or the cities you've been in. Like, is there anything that, are there moments that stand out to you uh, when you look back? Most of of what I remember, and I think I probably remember more from the recent years, is just uh, spending time with my teammates, playing with my teammates. You know, we'd often rent out you know, houses or places to stay, uh, sort of all over, you know, both in the United States and internationally. And I, and I definitely have more of a memory of, you know, those, those times and those places and playing with them than I really will of, of the tournament itself. I mean, I know that, uh, I guess post hall of fame, I've made six ish top eights and I have some vague recollections, but I mean, nothing even really more than maybe, a mental image of what I think the venue looked like or one or two other things. And, 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 and this is, I think, sort of common for me when it comes to playing Magic in tournaments. Has there ever been anything noteworthy in terms of something crazy that's happened to you on the road? I mean, let me think for a second. It's, uh, it's interesting where maybe it's just that I'm older now, but I don't tend to I tend to view I think a much smaller percentage of things is crazier weird than uh, maybe I used to and, and I don't even know exactly always what qualifies you know like I know that uh wait, you know the few times I've gone to Grand Prix let's say uh, specifically in, in Latin American countries you know I end up taking so many photographs and signing so many play mats and cards I think when I was in Costa Rica a few years ago I honestly in pretty sure I took over 500 photographs and signed over 500 cards and uh and part of me you know i mean i i like that and i enjoy it it can also get get pretty tiring you know as well i don't know if that really counts as a crazy thing you know we've gone to uh you know a bunch of restaurants in various places which are pretty nice you know we've stayed at some pretty cool locations and again i don't think any of this necessarily qualifies as crazy uh like in belgium we stayed at this sort of old farmhouse uh but it was you know going back you know centuries uh you know kind of in the middle of nowhere but i do remember there was a supermarket about 10 minutes down the block that had uh some of the best croissants ever had and there were supermarket croissants and maybe that's an indictment of croissants in the united states but you know we stayed on bondi beach in, in australia which was really nice we also actually stayed in, they called it a castle, but uh, in Ireland, castles sort of, it was maybe slightly generous, but it was big and, you know, made of stone and, and really old. Uh, so, you know, you, you know, stayed in a lot of interesting places like that. Oh man, I actually remember when we were in, uh, I think it was Valencia, one of the ones in Spain, we rented out this house that was a little bit out of town. And this happens a fair bit because if you want to get uh, a lot of people into one space. Uh, sometimes you end up going a little bit out of town. The uh, but yeah, but we were in this place, and 
uh, it was kind of nice, but there was like problems with their sewage system or whatever, and their toilet just like backed up, and all of a sudden, all sewage started coming out of the toilet, and it was pretty nuts. And then I remember the uh, the owner, uh, you know, basically star security deposit because of it. You know, even though of course, you know, th- there's no way we could have made their entire sewage system back up through their toilet. I mean, if in a flooded like of the house, which of course was really bad for us. Um, but it was, I don't remember if we, what, what service we were using, but as well as ones where basically it's sort of difficult to, you know, to get your money, you know, back and, you know, he's making some claims and, you know, they really don't want to get involved. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and then I remember like, you know, a few years later, he like friended me on LinkedIn or whatever. And I'm like, you know, dude, like, <laughs> I'm sure this was certainly, you know, automated like they do. But I was like, are, are, are you for real? I mean, I didn't bother writing him because at that point, what am I going to do? Right, right. So not only could you not use the toilet, but you were scammed out of the money, essentially. Yeah. And also there was a portion of the of the house that was sort of not really usable. Um, so not not great. But yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, again, if, if that was the worst thing to happen to me that month, it was still probably a pretty good month. So, John, I'd like to talk a little bit about the team that you're currently part of. You told me that you're on the Ultimate Guard Pro Team. Can you tell me, other than yourself, of course, who else is on the team? Yeah, uh, so the team is, uh, you know, William Jensen, who's the uh, the current uh, Magic World Champion. We have Owen Turnantwald, who I think is... Uh, probably the consensus best magic player in the world currently and for the last few years if you uh ask people you know the the pros opinions uh then we have reed duke who i think might even be uh the the, sort of the top ranked player based on their current ranking system uh yeah he is in fact in first place uh and then and i think that the three of those guys uh and, and the order is sort of obviously a bit difficult to know um but i have, have a reasonable claim to to likely being the the three best magic players in the world right now uh and then you know we also have you know two other excellent players in paul reedson and andrew cunha and how long have you been with this team how did you get involved with the ultimate guard pro team yeah so uh you know it's a group of people that i played with for a long time i mean going back to you know when i started playing in some tournaments again back at the end of 2011 you know there was a group of people that were that i ended up playing with and slowly over time the groups you know change you know some people stop coming some more people join us and i don't even i remember reed was with us sort of towards the beginning i didn't know who he was he didn't really have a, a name i think very much at that point uh although who knows maybe, maybe i'm wrong i wasn't i wasn't that great at paying attention andrew's been with us for a really long time Paul has come and gone, uh, but he's been with us again for a while. Uh, Owen was on Channel Fireball before us, and maybe a year or two after Reed was playing with us, he, he came on board. Uh, I don't know if that was before or after uh, William Jensen joined us. Um, you know, he started to play with us after he uh, got elected to Hall of Fame in, I don't know, 2013 maybe. Maybe he was 12. And, uh, but I knew him from years ago, you know, when I played around the first time, he's probably about five years younger than me. Uh, and we, um, had a, you know, a friendly relationship. It was like, we hung out all the time. Uh, but I always really liked him and I had a ton of respect for him as a magic fighter because he was just, you know, even when he was, you know, 14 or 15, he was obviously just really, really, really good. Uh, and then, you know, there's a bunch of other people that we played with for, you know, for a, a really extended period. Uh, but, you know, these, these pro teams are six people, um, you know, so it's, you know, people like, uh, you know, like Gabriel Nassif, Yelger Wiegersma, you know, Ben Rubin, you know, I mean, also, you know, when they play, you know, Kai Booty p- plays with us, who's, you know, obviously pretty well known, you know, Shahar Shanhar plays with us, Brock Parker, you know, just, just you know, a, a decent number of, of pretty well-known people. I see. So it's a core team of six people, but there are others that practice or play or consult with you guys as well. That's what it sounds like, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean so we have like a playtest group that's larger than that, but for the team series competition, uh, you know, the six of us are together. And then obviously the, uh, you know, the other players that, that you know, that play 
uh, you know, are on are on some of their own teams. And you said since 2011, kind of on and off working with these guys. So it's been the, on the better part of six or seven years. Is that right? Yeah, and I would say that probably you know the core group has been together for probably about four of those or so. I see. What kinds of things have you learned from the other team members? I'm sure they've learned from you because you you have a lot more experience than some of these guys. But are there specific things or examples of things that you may have learned from working with the other team members in terms of helping your magic game in any way? I mean, the answer is definitely yes. I guess the biggest benefit that I've gotten from the team is that, you know, I have a full-time job. I don't play necessarily a ton between pro tours and, you know, I'll get out practice, uh, which can really matter. And I can see the difference from, you know, if I would show up a week before the pro tour, a week and a half, just throughout the course of that, just, you know, playing, you know, also I don't really pay attention necessarily to a lot of the metagame. And so, it would really help to give me, you know, a leg up in my constructed preparation. Uh, and then, you know, of course, for each set, there's, you know, a, a lot of limited play. And, uh, you know, we get together, we talk about it a lot. We, we draft, you know, both, you know, as a group, you know, sort of, I guess, against each other. Um, but then also we'll draft together, let's say, Magic Online, where we'll discuss picks. And, uh, I mean, I'm sure I've learned something from everybody uh, in terms of drafting, just because there, there's so much to learn about formats and you know different people have different experiences with different cards. So it sounds like you're less day-to-day throughout the course of the year with the Magic sets and the cards, but when the Pro Tours come together, obviously, that's when you get the crash course and you work with these guys and you, you get a lot of information in terms of how to approach the, the formats or, or the current cards in the set. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, that uh, that certainly is. You know, I mean, the, you know, if I was playing all the time, I, you know, I would certainly be better than I am when I show up at the Pro Tour. Uh, but I think that with the amount that I'm able to play, I can get the maybe 90 to 95 percent of where I could be. And and like a lot of other things, it, it's you know maybe even easier to get up to 90 percent uh, prepared than it is to go from 90 to 100. I know it's a tough question, but have you learned to think about magic differently as a result of working with these guys? Just in terms of your preparation process, how you view the game as a whole, does that has that changed throughout the years or in recent years? I think that... So I think that the biggest change, I don't know how much it's... You know, it comes from being with these guys versus just the fact that I think magic has shifted somewhat. Uh, but the biggest change is that it, gen- it definitely seems to be the case now where you know the, the preparation process of Special Constructed uh, has moved away from trying to find something new or, or break the format, as they say, to trying to ha- you know figure out which of the expected decks is probably going to be the best and what's the right way to build it based upon what it looks like other people will be playing, uh, how to tune it and having a good understanding uh, of the deck. And it's not to say that uh, occasionally you can't um, go ahead and, uh, and, you know, find something brand, brand new, but, uh, and I try <laughs> most of the time, but, but usually that's, that's not the case and it's, uh, and, and, and that's fine. And you shouldn't knock yourself out trying to, you know, invent a better wheel because a lot of times these magic formats, uh, you know, that, that simply doesn't exist because of the speed with which information is disseminated. Uh, it probably would have already been found. So if it's an optimization problem, you're saying that it's because of the availability of information out there that led to that? Or are, do you think there are other factors as well? I think it's also just the way that they've been building their uh, the cards, you know, they, they made a concerted effort a number of years ago to make the the threats stronger and more powerful than the answers. And then they, they also made a uh, an effort to make the sort of more expensive cards, um, you know, that cost, you know, maybe four, five, six mana uh, much stronger. Uh, and then, and so, and then 
they've sort of countered that by making a lot of the really cheap and aggressive cards even more powerful. And so you end up in a situation where you have, you know, maybe really strong cards like, you know, like Tefiri. Uh, and then they balance that by having, you know, really strong cards like, you know, like a bunch of, you know, cheap, aggressive red creatures. And it, it really tends to put a lot of constraints on, on, on the formats in terms of what you can realistically try to do. Um, because you, you end up in a lot of situations where the, the aggressive decks are so strong and, and, and they have to be like that if they're going to make these, you know, the, the dragons that are on the, the, the box, you know, the booster box, if they want those to be, you know, really powerful cards as well. It, it, you end up in a situation where uh, a little bit of inconsistency um, can make a game almost unwinnable. You know, if, if, you, if you think of playing against these red decks and you're going to miss on a few of your land drops or if you're going to, you know, have some lands that come into play tapped and you, at the wrong times, uh, you almost can't win. And so, uh, it, you know, it, it, it definitely, I think, you know, rewards... Um, you know, more focused and more linear decks. Uh, and, and, and that will then, you know, again, narrow the, the range of sort of, you know, reasonable uh, decks that could be, uh, you know, that could be successful in any given standard format. And I know you said that you started playing in the control days of the early editions of Magic. So how does that make you feel as a as a player? Is it just something that is kind of like I go with the flow because that's where the game is now. Or do you have any, do you have any feelings about how how things are today compared to maybe how they were in the past? Yeah, I I think constructed is much worse and not particularly fun really in any of the formats. Uh, I think that it's um, I don't know how much of it is, you know, the the desire of the people who make the cards to have. The, the rare cards be a lot better than the other cards um, and to have, you know, aggressive cards and, uh, you know, threats be, you know, be, be a much bigger deal and to have, uh, you know, the game having, you know, being around big haymakers. Uh, you know, back when I played, it was a lot more about incremental advantage and, and sort of getting a little edge there and a little edge here, um, which is, again, very different from the, you know, very, you know, very cheap, very good cards that will kill you quickly versus, you know, slightly more expensive, but, you know, really powerful haymakers. And it also felt like there used to be just a lot more sort of like weird ways you could attack the game where you're not just trying to build some onboard advantage where either you kill all their creatures or they kill all yours. I mean, you can think about, you know, all the old combo decks of old, um, you know, the, you know, you have like the, you know, the, the illusions donate decks, you have, you know, high tide time spiral. You know, you have some of these recurring nightmare decks. Um, and I'm not saying that the you always want to have decks like that. They're dominating, but it, it you know, it, it felt like there were a lot of different ways you could um, attack the game. Now, all that being said, it might just be the case that the information distribution was so much slower back then, and sort of optimization learning was so much was so much slower. And while maybe there was the internet. Uh, around it just wasn't like it is today that you know maybe if we relived those years it would be even worse um, than it is right now just because the the formats would get solved much more quickly um, and the things that uh, you know that, that I found really interesting uh, might not exist as much um, you know with uh, you know the sort of scrutiny from the players um, and you know and all the brain power that's going into it today. I think it's also going back to what we talked about earlier, which is about memory. I I know that I've started playing Magic earlier on as well, and I wonder sometimes if we're just very nostalgic and we look back with rose-colored glasses. I know you mentioned that, you know, if the information was available back then, then it would be broken much more quickly. But I also wonder, too, if there's an element of, oh, I I liked it in the old days, and now it's different, and so... So now I don't like it as much. But of course, of course, everybody's view is important and, and different. But I'm wondering if there's a bit of that as well. Uh, there might be. And, you know, to be honest, I was never a huge fan of, of Constructed. Uh, I always found Limited Magic to be much more interesting. You know, Constructed felt more like doing your homework 
you know, and, and, and sort of do a lot of similar things over and over again and try to change one thing and then see what happens and change another thing. Uh, you know, I always, well, what, you know, significantly prefer draft. Um, you know, I mean, I went to multiple constructed pro tours back when these items separated, you know, without ever, you know, without having done a ton of testing. Um, that was also true for some of the, of the draft pro tours, including, I think actually a couple I made top eight in, but, um, but mostly, I thought draft was a much more interesting format to play and also a lot more skill testing because um, there were just so many more decisions and it couldn't be just that, you know, you played this one deck over and over and over again and you sort of learned all of the different situations. Is there something about New York guys or New, New York, New Jersey guys and limited drafting? Because I remember talking to Calcano on the show and he basically said the same thing. He, he didn't say he was a limited specialist, but he essentially said that, you know, this is that's the most skill testing format. He goes into pro tours with the most confidence about his limited game. He banks on that to uh, maintain his pro status. And I'm wondering if there's some kind of thing going on in that in the New York area where it's just that top level players just gravitate towards limited. Yeah, I mean, if, if you asked, you know, top 100 magic players in the world. You know, 75 of them would say that they prefer limited. But the reality is, of course, is that limited coverage doesn't sell as many cards. Uh, you know, Wizards has, you know, again, going back to them, they call it the New World Order. Um, you know, they've really um, tried to uh, optimize magic in a way, uh, you know, to sell as many cards as possible, um, which is often related to having the the best game, but not um, but not always. And this is part of, you know, again, when they want to make sort of the, the big threats better, you know, they would never want a card like Counterspell for two blue mana, which I'm not even saying it would be good if it existed or not. Um, you know, they want all the big dragons and things to be good. This is like with Planeswalkers, which I think was just an enormous design mistake. I think that they've made Magic into a much worse game. And, uh, and also when they really made a concerted effort to move the cards that were going to be, uh, you know, constructed playable, you know, into the rare and the mythic slots. I think this is around when they came with, with, with the mythic as well. Um, so that in order to really, to you know, to feel the competitive deck, um, he, you know, required the purchase of a lot more cards uh, because a much higher percentage of the cards, um, you know, would be mythic or rare as opposed to common and uncommon. The game has definitely become more mainstream slash commercialized, for better or worse. And I'm just wondering if you or other pro players you know have talk to wizards or giving them feedback about this stuff that the stuff that you're kind of telling me right now has that have you ever had some discussions with him about it yeah i mean i know a lot of people who work there and um you know i mean i mean you know they're they're aware and of course you know they they make some arguments the other way which are fine you know they'll say well you know we're trying to make it the best game for everybody not just for the pro players and of course i understand that um although that's more of an argument around the sort of making you know the big dragons good and not having a game where it's all about small edges i mean you know look uh the, the pro tour is sort of it, it, it's it's sort of i don't want to say an afterthought but it's like a secondary concern it's the, the pro tour is there to help them sell cards and it's, the, it's a marketing device and their primary interest is in selling cards so you know if you say to them well hey you know, you guys are making the Mythics and the Rares a lot better cards, and therefore we need to have decks that are all made of that are made of all of those cards. You know, <laughs> that, that that that's kind of the entire point. And you know, I, I don't think these decisions are necessarily coming from you know R and D per se, but these are the sort of constraints within with you know within which they they operate. And then I think it's probably a a pretty good business decision. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if it necessarily uh leads to the the best game but in terms of the tension between those two goals at least it's not too great yeah i'm not sure i buy that because if you if you take a flawed analogy like basketball if you have steph curry shooting 35 footers and the houston rockets doing an iso offense you know they're doing things in order to win and to maximize their chance of winning and then guess what? Casual players, casual basketball players, they imitate that. Like they're going to imitate whatever the top players do. So if the pro players actually started winning again with recurring nightmare and whatnot, 
you can bet the the casual players, tournament players, Friday Night Magic players will be trying to do the same as well. So I'm not sure that printing more dragons would, or four, five, six drops that are uh, like dragons or planeswalkers would necessarily sell more cards because I still think that players at all levels tend to follow what top level players do. I, I think this is certainly true to some extent. Uh, you know, obviously this is uh, you know a little bit orthogonal to the question of what rarity to print the the good cards at. Um, but you know, even going back in the day, you know, you know there's all joke, right? Like you know, people would online back when you could do it, and you know, looking for you know an opponent, and they'd say you know n- n- you know no counters, no no land destruction, right? So you know, okay, I mean. You know, they, they made it so, the, you know, there, there's not going to be ever be a good land destruction deck, right? That's what they, you know, that's the, that that's what they want. And that's been sort of eliminated from the universe. You know, what do pe- people don't like counters. They don't like land destruction. They don't really like discard. Um, you know, they don't like when their opponents combo off. Uh, and, and so these things have been um, intentionally shuttered to be less uh, good strategies, you know, sh- strategies in, in general and and yeah and so that's you know you know it, it's a little bit different would be if uh would be like if people you know didn't like you know shooting three pointers or whatever and they and, and everyone in their casual games used the nba lines and so then the nba was like okay we're gonna move the three-point line back three feet probably doesn't affect steph curry but um but you know i, I think that that's sort of the way uh that it might work right and let's talk about limited for a second, because you did say that you feel very strong and limited, or you're very practiced in it. And so, for the pro tours, what is your preparation process for that? I know you said that you you grind games with your teammates. Are there other things that you you guys try to do in terms of preparation? Yeah. So now we also, uh, you know, so obviously we play a lot on Magic Online, and I've been going maybe to, for a little bit less prep time beforehand, you know, to the actual site. Um, so, you know, a fair bit of Magic Online. There was also a long time when you weren't able to draft on Magic Online until only a few days before the Pro Tour. So you basically had to get together and play and, um, and you know, and play in person. You know, so we do a lot of that and then we'll have, you know, we'll, we'll keep records so we can see how we're doing with different archetypes and different colors. Um, and if anyone else does, I'm sure other people do this, but people really need to, to be wary of... Um, trying to make conclusions from small sample sizes. But you can even have some things that appear to be statistically significant. But, it, it, you know, when you think about, you know, the number of different maybe things you're analyzing, some of them will, of course, be outliers. And, and you also have to think about your your priors. So, you know, I think that uh, for the last one, over a pretty substantive number of matches or of games for mulligans, uh, like mulliganing on the play was something like six percent better than mulliganing on the draw in our data. I think even after you corrected for the difference in like the win rates overall between those, and it was to the point where you know it was definitely like a, probably at least a two, if not a three, standard deviation event. So you know very rare would look statistically significant, but but given you know the the amount that we've played and and the understanding that generally mulliganing is going to hurt you more on the play than on the draw because you're, you're effectively losing a higher percentage of your, um, you know, of your, uh, uh, of your total, of your total resources, you know, so, so drawing to go from six cards to seven cards is better than drawing to go from seven cards to eight cards. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's almost certain that that was, um, illusory, um, and not really predictive. Um, so you know you you have to just sort of be be aware of all these things when you're when you're keeping stats, and and, and trying to, you know, f- find some uh, from in, some insight from those. It definitely strikes me that maybe because of the way you're describing it, and also because I know that you you work in a for a hedge fund, that you probably have a better nose for these types of numbers and statistical analysis than maybe some of the other players uh is that something that you try to tell the team about or something that or is that a way that you contribute to it or do you think that all your teammates are pretty much tuned into what you had described i, I think that, that they're somewhat tuned in um 
I definitely am, am more so just because, you know, I, I work in a field where, uh, you know, you're looking at a lot of things, you see statistically significant things all of the time that you think there's a good chance that they're false. Um, and, and then, you know, because you're betting on them and, and often large amounts of money, uh, you, you need to be really careful with these things. Um, and so I think that I, I, I just from, you know, uh, experience, I probably do have a bit better of a nose, nose for that. Um, but I mean, you know, that the, there's a, you know, a number of people on our team, um, you know, who, you know, who, who are, who are pretty talented in these areas. Um, so I don't want to make it like, as if I'm like, you know, out there imparting wisdom to, you know, the uneducated masses, um, when, when, when that, when that's far from the case. Right. But having said that, I am wondering, are there things that you feel that you're bringing to the table in terms of value that you're providing for the team? Maybe another way to ask it is, how do you think others have benefited from your experience and your role on the team? Uh, I mean, I, you know, I think that there's probably been a few ways. You know, I have, I've, I've been through all the winning and losing tons of times before. I definitely don't get too emotionally attached um, either to my results or also to specific decks. Um, I, you know, I, I definitely have over the years, um, you know, played a pretty substantive role in just, you know, organizing and, um, you know, decision-making for the team as a group, you know, me and Billy. And, um, I mean, you know, it's a great group of guys and we generally get along, but, <clears throat> you know, you know, as with anything else, when you're trying to, um, you know, take, you know, a dozen people and plan around and sort of make decisions and different people have slight different preferences and, and other things, you know, it's, uh, <clears throat> you know, you know, you, you, you still need to put in a little bit of effort so that, you know, you know, you can do the best to, to keep everybody as, as happy as, as possible. Uh, and, and I think that I'm pretty good at deck selection, um, and, and, and tuning, uh, you know, I'm probably less likely than, a lot of other people to sort of come up with and build a new deck. Uh, but I think that I generally uh, end up making pretty good choices. Um, I have a good understanding for, you know, for when I, uh, I should, you know, trust the opinions of other people um, when, you know, rather than my own versus when I should, um, you know, have my own opinion. I mean, you know, generally it's the case if, one person thinks one thing is the best, someone else thinks the other thing is the best, is that one of them is wrong. And, you know, in magic, that you know, there's a lot of ways that people try to find where, oh, you know, maybe they're both right, or oh, neither's really wrong, either one's okay. And, you know, I, I, I think, that, of course, sometimes these decisions are really close, um, and sometimes it's impossible to know, but, um, you, know, it, you know, if you're in a room and there's five other people that, you think are really talented, really good at this and whose, you know, overall skill and decision-making is as good as yours or better than yours. It's a, I think it's a scary thing to do to say, well, I disagree. So I'm just going to do what I think is best. Um, you know, rather than having a, a model that, that sort of tries to weight your opinion equivalently with the opinion of, of these other people. And, and so sometimes then you end up playing what you think is wrong because, you know, your, your model of how much to weight everybody's opinion, you know, will suggest that you should actually not do what you want to do and, and do what somebody else wanted to do. I, I don't know if that made any sense or not, or if I got a little bit, uh, a little bit into the weeds there. It did make sense. It, it's a little bit of, like I heard this at Amazon where they have this principle called disagree and commit, where it is not about building consensus per se because consensus can be dangerous if you try to cater to everybody at the end of the day as a team you have to weigh the different viewpoints and options and go with something and in the end you might play a deck that you feel very strongly about personally you support personally or you may not but i guess that's part of being a team right is that you have to be willing to ultimately own a decision as a team that's that's kind of my takeaway from from hearing what you're saying in terms of the model yeah, and I, I guess just to be clear, I mean, we, we don't always play the same deck, uh, you know, as a team. Um, but it's important to to, to, you know, to understand where you maybe feel, you know, that, that deck A is the best deck before other people whose opinions that you trust a lot think deck B is. 
and you know, and the right thing is almost always going to be to go with deck B because either you're making a mistake or all four of them are making a mistake. And it's more likely that you're making a mistake than all four of them. Right. That requires managing one's ego too, right? Or at least removing one's ego from the equation because you're all very talented players and you've all accomplished quite a bit. If each of you went to another team, you'd probably be definitively the headmaster. So that I, I imagine that takes absence of ego and humility as well. That, that's certainly a, a, a nice way to think about it. Um, and I guess it's true to some extent. Uh, but also, I mean, if, if you if you want to win, I mean, you know, you look at basketball, right? You know, people saw how Kobe Bryant wanted to win. Kobe Bryant didn't want to win. Tim Duncan wanted to win. You know, Kobe Bryant wanted to be the superstar. And that's very different. He wanted the winning shot. You know, Tim Duncan wanted to win because he was okay to take on a lesser role or to, or to not be the guy all the time if that maximized the chances of victory. Yeah, Kobe was gunning till the very end, to his very last game, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like Kobe, I think, has the record for like the most game-winning shots in NBA history, and he's also has one of the largest downgrades in, in efficiency um, you know, in clutch of anybody in NBA history. Mm-hmm. And it's just because he always wants to take that shot. And uh, and so, you know, it, it, it's it's important to you know to, to i guess they, they call some difference between being correct and being right you know and, and it's more important to be correct than to be right absolutely and on that note what are your goals for continuing to be involved in these teams because i know that you've at least on paper accomplished essentially what any magic player would have dreamed of already you're in the hall of fame you have records you're widely considered to be one of the greatest magic players of all time. And yet you're dedicating time to work with this team, with these guys, going to the pro tours, taking time away from your normal day-to-day priorities. So what keeps you mentally in it? Yeah, it's, it's hard and it's, it's, you know, it gets a little bit harder every year. Um, You know, for, uh, for last year, the end of it, I, I was, um, you know, pretty struggling considering not going to all the pro tours this season. Um, you know, it's, uh, I'd like to have some vacation time. That's not also, uh, stressful and work, even if it's, you know, with something I enjoy, um, you know, and I do, and, you know, and I do really enjoy again with my teammates, some of my best friends. Um, and I love spending time with them. Uh, but <clears throat> you know, my, my teammates, you know, they didn't really have somebody else that they were really excited about playing with for the season. Um, and so they were like, you know, they said to me, Hey John, you know, are you fine with doing some preparation work on your own? And then maybe only coming for a day or two beforehand. Uh, and I've been doing a little bit more of, of that here where I've been, um, you know, playing some more magic online, um, and doing some more prep work myself. Uh, you know, I, I'm not really sure how much longer I'm be going to all the, the tournaments, um, you know, because, you know, it, it is hard to try to compete when, uh, you know, you are getting a little bit older and, and also when you're not spending as much time as, you know, a bunch of other people who are also very bright and very talented and, you know, 15 years younger than you are. Um, you know, it's it, it's 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 difficult. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I suspect in my you know, career of, of being, uh, you know, competitive um, you know, probably isn't going to last too much longer. I see. So for you, it's not strictly about winning the next pro tour or top eighting, but it's about being in the game and uh, and really being part of a team. It sounds like. So when I go to a tournament, I, you know, I want to win. I want to do well. I want to make the top eight. Uh, these things are important to me, uh, and. You know, this is a little bit of tension where it can get a little bit difficult uh, because I, you know, because, again, I, I don't put in the preparation work that some people do. Uh, I don't play as much overall. Uh, and, uh, I mean, this is, is part of what I'm talking about is, you know, I, I don't want to go to a lot of tournaments and, and you know, kind of, you know, n- not... Uh, you know, show for tournaments and just not be prepared and not be any good. I certainly can't do that when I'm on a six-man team that's, 
you know, uh, you know, very, very likely the, you know, the, the, the best, uh, you know, the best of the teams. I mean, we, you know, we probably have the top three players and we are in first place this year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's, uh, you know, it, it's kind of a, of a hard thing to, for me to at least really try to do and, and half-ass. I am curious because of what you said about how you feel about the game today and having limited time to participate. I know that you still play in some GPs and, and events like that. And so how do you feel about the eternal formats, formats like Vintage and Legacy? I, I, I think I, I recall reading about you playing in some Legacy tournaments. Uh, vintage probably not so much because they're not around. But uh, how do you feel about the Legacy format? Is that something that you enjoy playing in? Uh, so I, I actually haven't gone to that many Grand Prix in a while. Um, there's a period when I did, there was a couple seasons ago where I made two top eights and I hadn't gone to that many Grand Prix and I, uh, went to some to hope to pick up enough to maybe qualify for worlds. Um, which, uh, which I did not end up doing that year, but you know, I, I've played in. I mean, very few Grand Prix for the last calendar year. You know, m- maybe only, uh, you know, two or, or three. Um, you know, you know, going back to uh, to Kyoto, uh, which was I guess last July. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's just you know, it's 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 hard for me to, uh, you know, jump on a plane to you know on Friday to fly to some place to play in a big, you know, tournament on. Saturday morning and Sunday and, uh, you know, and then fly back and these tournaments are huge and there's relatively little prize support. Um, and, uh, and, you know, generally playing formats I'm not very excited about. So, um, you know, so going to pro tours is one thing like, you know, I'm willing to put in the, the effort and the time to, to try to be competitive there and to go play in those, um, but generally for Grand Prix, not so much. Uh, I think I may have played in like one Legacy Grand Prix where I borrowed a deck from Reed. Uh, but I, I effectively, you know, don't play Legacy or, or Vintage at all. Do you have any thoughts about Legacy at all? Just uh, in, in terms of being able to use older cards or anything like that? I mean, not not really. You know, again, it's formats I don't pay that much attention to. I, I guess I guess the one thing I will say about the uh, eternal formats, you know, specifically as modern and legacy, is that it's nice in that there's a lot more diversity of decks um, than there is in uh, you know in the standard formats. Uh, you know, but the downside is is that you know they tend to change very slowly and often because you know uh, of bannings, uh, you know, and also the you know the combination of very powerful sideboard cards. And a lot of potential matchups um, can create a sort of uh, unfortunate situation where, uh, you know, people draw their, you know, couple of, you know, huge sideboard hosers, then they're going to just, you know, win. And if, you know, the other person does, then they're going to win. And, uh, and and I think that that's, you know, a bit, you know, problematic, right? Like if you're playing you know, a deck that loses the rest in peace and maybe people are playing, maybe some people have two of those in their sideboard or they have, you know, their spell bombs or their other things. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, did they draw a second turn rest in peace or did they not? You know, that makes like a huge, huge difference. You know, if you're playing Affinity and they, you know, draw their Ancient Grudges or their Shatterstorm, you know, or whatever, you know, or their Stony Silence. You know, they have two Stony Silences. Okay, did they draw it or not? And, uh, and, and yeah, and I, I think that, that that is is somewhat problematic. So those formats do tend to get a bit stale, and uh, and, and the sideboarding of them I think is is pretty bad. Uh, but um, but on the other hand, they have a diversity that that standard you know hasn't had in a really really long time. Yeah, it sounds like it's a double-edged sword, right? Because it's diversity, but at the cost of you need to have haymaker cards that can instantly answer things because the flip side of not having not jamming that stony silence for rest in peace is that you just lose on the spot <laughs> right and uh so it makes it kind of you know it's kind of random where you know someone's cyborg has to be ready for you know 10 different decks and maybe one person chooses three of a card and someone else chose two or one um but then you know you're playing your your affinity deck and it's 
or you know, you know, and you're at the end, you're like, okay, did they? You know, how many of the white people I played against? How many of them drew their stony silences? Did I play against the ones that were that happened to choose to do three, or did I play against the ones that happened to choose to do one? And um, it, it's not, I think, a ton of fun when, uh, or even that interesting is is what I care about more. I guess even than fun when a uh, entire um, you know, when an entire match comes down to uh, you know, to uh. So, so yeah, to like one or two sideboard cards, and it's uh, and it's just like that card on its own, you know, is you know the the, the complete difference maker. Um, you know, so yeah, so I think that's a problem, but I don't really know if it's a solvable problem. John, I want to ask you about gamers helping gamers. I know it's a magic related charity that you've founded or co-founded and you're a part of to help magic players with college tuition. Can you tell me a bit about this organization in your own words, what it is, and uh, how it can potentially help Magic players? Yeah, uh, I think we gave out our first scholarships, I want to say six or seven years ago. Uh, I'm not sure uh, exactly. Uh, and it was you know, an idea of a friend of mine, Tim McKenna, who um, you know, used to you know, play Magic. Uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, he's a, a pretty good tournament player, but, but never you know, like a dominant one or anything else. Um, you know, and he's worked for years as a, uh, you know, as an economist in, in, in New York. Um, and there are a number of other ones of us in New York who, you know, played a lot of magic um, and have been reasonably professionally successful. And, you know, when it comes to scholarships, there's, it seems like there's scholarships out there for, you know, almost everything. Um, but there wasn't really that much in a way for magic players. And generally, magic players tend to be, you know, bright and interesting people who have, a, you know, a good, useful way to, uh, you know, to sort of view and understand the world. Um, so, you know, we wanted to step in and do something uh, to help out a little bit there. Uh, and so, you know, he had the idea of starting Gamers Helping Gamers. Um, and uh, and you know, I guess the rest of the board, um, you know, it's you know, like me, uh, you know, Chris Pakula, Bob Maher, uh, Matt Wang, you know, uh, Daniel Manhattan, uh, Daniel Manhattan Schwartz, um, you know, uh, a few other people like Eric Berger, who uh, is probably not as well known in in Magic, uh, and um, you know, and the idea has been to you know use it as a way to both you know help to maybe raise some money for the Magic community and also uh, you know help some Magic players, uh, and you know I, I think it's been a pretty big success and we've had. Certainly, a number of, of uh, winners um, who we've stayed in touch with, who've gone on to be, you know, you know, pretty impressive uh, people. Uh, I know, I know, one of our first-year winners, Dylan Fay, uh, ended up going to Yale Law School, where he graduated from. Uh, I know that uh, one of our winners from four years ago, Nathan Calvin, um, just graduated college. Uh, and he's going to Stanford Law School, although I think he's taking a, a year off to to do a, a program at Oxford in between. Um, so he's obviously a, a, you know, another very impressive uh, young man. Um, you know, I, I guess the best Magic player that's probably one it is Oliver too. Oh, Oliver's been through this. Yeah, okay. yeah. And uh, you know, one of the decisions we made was that you know we 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 care a little, and we count a little bit magic results like we want them to be a real magic player and it will help them a little if they've done well um but, but we're also not going to just give it to uh you know we're not going to overweight that where oh there you know there's some magic player 17 and he won a pro tour so he's gonna he's gonna win the scholarship um you know but uh but yeah but no but oliver was you know pretty impressive outside of uh you know just his magic play as well how can kids or how can folks apply for the program Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, we have a, a website, you know, gamershelpinggamers.org. Um, and, you know, every every year uh, at the beginning of the year, the uh, you know, we start taking applications. Um, applications usually close at some point in May. Uh, so they, they closed already for this year. And uh, we're actually um, we've been reading through all the applications. We're going to decide on the final winners uh, next week and we're going to contact them. And probably in the next few weeks, we'll uh, we'll be announcing them. Um, you know, we're, we're still open for donations and, uh, you know, happy to have them. Uh, and also anyone who's, who's interested in, or in applying, you know, should stop by our website. And then, you know, at some point, you know, early next year, we'll, we'll let people know when they're, when they're open. 
uh, and then they can apply again. Any interesting surprises to you since you've been running the program, uh, maybe in a good way, like in terms of the feedback or how it's benefited certain certain folks? I mean, I, I've been really impressed with, you know, with some of our winners who I've, you know, grown to know as, as, as people, you know, sort of stayed in touch with us. Uh, you know, um, you know, I mean, the, the, the ones that I just, you know, mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Oliver, Dylan and Nathan, um, I guess probably gotten to know Nathan, the best of the three, but really just bright, you know, interesting, uh, motivated people, uh, good people. Um, and that's, and that's been really great. You know, it, it's, it's one of those things that makes you think it's worthwhile, um, when you think that, you know, maybe I made it a little bit easier for this person to get through college and it looks like they are going to be going on to be doing, you know, great things with their life. Are there things that you're looking to evolve in terms of the program, like in terms of doing more in the, in the future, anything that comes to mind? Uh, you know, it, I mean, obviously it'd always be great if, uh, we start to get, um, you know, a lot more into donations and we could expand the number of scholarships we were giving, we're given, uh, but uh, you know, generally, I, I've been pretty happy with how it's it's been running. Um, you know, we've been getting, you know, I mean, every year we get a lot of great candidates, you know, where I feel like we could probably go even deeper and, uh, and you know, and, you know, find some people who are really deserving. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I don't really see, uh, I don't really foresee any, any ways to sort of like branch out or, or, or sort of reinvent the wheel or do, or do anything different because I think it's been working pretty well so far. That's great. Gamers Helping Gamers. I'll definitely put a link in the show notes so folks can can check that out. All right, thanks a lot. And John, thank you so much for your time today. It was a, a real pleasure talking to you. To be very honest, I was very nervous uh, conducting the interview because I knew I would be talking to John Finko. Thanks for uh, <laughs> giving me the chance to, to talk to you. Yeah, no, thank, uh, yeah, no problem at all. And, uh, you know, if you, if you sounded nervous, you certainly didn't sound it at all, but, uh, I guess you're, I guess you're used to doing these things. It's fun every time. And, uh, I, I certainly had a blast and I, I love talking to you and I wish you the best in your endeavors and hope that we can do this again in the future. Sounds good. All right. Thanks a lot.